Hello, welcome to Not The BBC. So this was exciting. I had the opportunity to speak with G. Edward Griffin. So if you're not familiar with that name, you will be familiar with his work. So G. Edward Griffin is the man who held the famous Norman Dodds interview, where he spoke to Norman Dodds about the the tax-exempt foundations and how they were being used by financial capitalists to, to centralise power. He also held the Yuri Besmanov interviews, which you know shed some light onto how the West was being subverted. And he also wrote a book called A Creature from Jekyll Island, where he looks at the founding of the Federal Reserve and more broadly about how central banking has been used to to exploit the people and has been used against us. So I was really excited to get the chance to speak to him. And I wanted to to make the most of his kind of wide ranging knowledge about the, the kind of nature of the beast and have him reflect on sort of how he thinks the US ended up getting captured and, and what the lessons are for us to learn and, and how we might look ahead from this. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And uh, yeah, let's just crack on with it. Hello, welcome to Not The BBC. I'm here with Mr. Griffin, who is a can be called nothing else than a, than a freedom fighting legend. I'm really excited to have you here, Ed. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. So in terms of where to start, it's, you know, you have i can't think of anyone who has a broader range of an understanding for i guess the nature of the beast and this sort of enemy and the sorts of lines of attack they've been put against the america and the free west in general so you know you you wrote um the creature of jekyll island a creature of jekyll island on the federal reserve you're very familiar with the way that the un has been used um on the global level you you interviewed yuri Bezmanov. Norman Dodds about the Tax and Zen Foundations. And, you know, it very much seems that the, um, you know, that power has been centralised and that there has been, you know, they have, the other side has been pretty successful. And I'm just kind of curious about how you reflect on that. You know, the US started, you know, obviously had some very, very wise founding fathers who knew the threats, many of these threats, and many of the powers in Europe and how they worked. I'm just kind of yeah, curious to kind of think how you understand how you reflect on the, the essentially the capture of the the United States and what what went wrong and what lessons we have to learn from it. Yeah, that is the big picture, all right, isn't it? And um, I think the word reflect is a is a good one because most of it is past tense. I I've come through a journey when I was. Uh, brought into the world, into the United States of America back in 1931, I was born. Um, that was a different country than it is now. And uh, like many young people, I really didn't, didn't pay much attention to things like politics or our history or principles of, uh, of liberty and economics. All of these things were, oh, that's fine. That's for the academics. But as for me, I was having a good time. I was in school and I went I decided I would go into speech and communications. And then I was going to have a lot of fun at the university and possibly meet the girl of my dreams, which I did, get married, start having a little family and rise the ladder, the corporate ladder, and make some money, make a big splash. And as a young man, I was all wrapped up in myself and my family. I had no interest at all uh, for anything outside of my, my immediate life. I was very, uh, what you might call materialistic, very self-centered. I don't think I was selfish in that sense, but I, my world was simply myself and my family. 
how much money am I making? Am I going to get a promotion? Uh, am, am I looking good? You know, a nice car that's going to make everybody envious. You know how people are, when, especially when they're young. Well, that was me from top to bottom. And I was in the corporate world and something happened. I just, just came across a, a little pamphlet one day. Uh, it was about the United Nations and a little blue pamphlet. It's somewhere in my collection. I've got to find it, but written by a, an unknown, unsung college professor from some Midwestern university. And he was telling me that everything I thought about the United Nations was wrong because I thought it was, a, you know, like uh, apple pie and ice cream. It was uh, uh, everything. It was our last best hope for peace, right? I had learned that in school. So when I read this pamphlet and this college professor was telling me basically that it was a, a deceitful proposition. It was an operation in which uh, what we thought or what we were told was not true at all. It was a cover for something far more sinister, something, something that we weren't going to like if it was allowed to come to fruition. Well, I didn't like that pamphlet. I rejected it. I thought, this guy is a maniac. How did he get to be a college professor? But I, I thought about it and I thought about it. A couple of things he mentioned did make sense to me. So I don't want to belate uh, belabor this point too much, but it's a journey. That was the beginning of my journey. I managed to go to the library shortly after that. I had some time off between appointments uh, and I went to the Los Angeles library and uh, I went to the international division and checked out some books on the United Nations. And to my amazement, I found that these books were written, of course, all all of them were written by people who were either employed by the United Nations or they were people involved with organizations which benefited from the United Nations, the UN uh, Association, some academics who really didn't know anything about it except what they had heard from other ac academics. And even then, I could smell the whiff of propaganda. So I was suspicious. And that was the beginning point. It was, from that point, little pieces begin, began to come into place. And piece by piece, you used the right word a moment ago when you said you were red-pilled, you took your first red pill. I was taking little red pills along the way. And what I discovered about three years into this process, or two or three years, is that just about everything, everything of great importance to me in my life that I really counted on was not true. Everything I believed was a fallacy. It was a myth. It was, it was deception. And this really changed my life because it was then at that time that I realized that I was about to make a transition from this self-centered little punk. I was all worried about how he's looking and how he's going to climb the ladder of success and enjoy all the material things. All of a sudden I began to think about the future of the country, I began to think about the future of my family the future of my fellow Americans. And I didn't know that I had a crusader gene, but it all of a sudden started to vibrate. And it was new to me. It was then that I began to realize that the America that I thought I was born into already by that time, and this was about 1960 we're talking about, already was gone. It was no longer that concept of free enterprise and uh, laissez-faire and every man for, you know, on his own merit. A man's word was his honor. His honor was, contract was his word. 
you know, where men had principles and where the legal profession hadn't sort of gotten involved and said, well, if it's legal, if we can draw up a contract and, and get the words just right, we, we can steal everybody blind. It's okay because it's legal. It was no longer a question of whether it's right. It was a question of whether it's legal. Hmm. And then I discovered that the political leaders that I had thought were wonderful, I voted for them ever since I was 21. And I'd been, been through about six or seven or eight different elections by this time. And uh, I all of a sudden realized that some of these characters I voted for were scumbums. <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to tell you this is that the beginning of my journey, I realized that I was living in a dream world. I realized that the America that was created by our founding fathers, as you correctly described them, was gone. Probably completely gone, or at least most of it gone by the end of World War I. Mm. And by the end of World War II, it was all gone. Yeah. And it, it was done in the name of war emergency. And by the way, that's a significant thing because emergencies and wars and crises are the, are the tactics by which a group of people who we'll undoubtedly be talking about in a moment, a specific group of people, decided that the only way to get the American people and the people around the world that were living in, in a high degree of prosperity and freedom only only way to get them to surrender all of those principles in which they the freedom that they enjoy the freedom of speech freedom of travel freedom to acquire property to be independent all of those things that the only way you could get people to abandon those things is if you scared the dickens out of them mm. and told them that they had to get rid of those things in order to survive and of course that takes us back to machiavelli and his book the prince Mm. in which he was telling the prince that, you know, when, when your subjects are becoming restless and they're, they're objecting to paying all those taxes that you're charging them and they don't like your, what you're doing to them and they're getting ready to revolt or have a revolution, well, all you have to do, your highness, is start a war or have a rumor of war, get involved in a war. And people will be so uh, so frightened by the fact of being conquered by a dreaded enemy who will come in and slaughter them and steal everything from them and destroy their buildings that they're not going to worry about your little indiscretions and your tyrannies because they'll be afraid of an enemy. And mm. all of these pieces began to come together in, into my awareness. I began to read books, which I never did before. I, I thought books were punishment. When I was in school, I thought they were punishment mm. for being a student. <laughs> I never realized that there were such valuable things. I began to read books. I became a, an avid reader, and I still am today. I have a, a very large library, and it's all there. The history of the world is all there in books. And in a couple of years' time, you can read quite a few books and learn all the lessons of history that it took. It took thousands of years for mankind to learn the hard way with boots on the ground. Yeah. Read a, read a couple of books, and you've got it. So that's what I have been doing since then, is reading the books and learning about what's going on, or what went on, I should say, in the past. So I witnessed, uh, I came in late in the game. By the time I arrived and started to ask these questions, I had to realize that the America I thought I was born into was a myth. It was gone. It was taken over by corrupt individuals mm. who, for, for lack of a better way of explaining who they were, I would say they were... Uh, con artists. Politicians are basically con artists. Yeah. And if you understand what a, you know, a con artist is somebody that is very convincing. 
I have never met a con artist in my life that I didn't trust mm. <laughs> because that's what they do. Yeah. And uh, that's their specialty. So politicians are con artists, not all of them, of course, yeah. some very good statesmen. But for the most part in the world in which we live today, the uh, people that go into politics are there because they think it's a cushy job. Mm. They think that they can uh, have power and prestige and lots of money, which they can. Yeah. All they got to, all they have to do is tell the people what they want to hear. Doesn't make any difference whether they believe it or not. They have, you know, they conduct polls all the time. What are the people wanting to hear? What are they saying? Who do they like? And then they hire the speechwriters to write the speeches so that they tell the people what they want to hear. So they will get elected, and that's all they care about. They don't really, they don't really believe what they say for the mm. most part, except it's it's a profession. Politics is a profession now. Yeah. And so you learn the tricks of the trade, and that's how you get elected. You tell people what they want to hear, and then if you really have big sights, big goals in mind, and you're not content with just plundering everybody through taxes and and graft and all that kind of thing, if you really get want to go for the big goal and talk about world governance and world government and world taxation and world control, well then now your sights go beyond that. and. Uh, and it's it's not petty anymore. Now you uh, you become a real professional, and uh, that's when you start having wars, and that's when you start thinking about having pandemics, and terrorism, and things which will scare the dickens out of people. So they'll be they'll be not not happy, but at least they'll be passive when you tell them they have to give up their liberty in order mm. to protect their lives and their health. They'll say, Oh yeah, I guess I. Yes, I do. I'll be a good citizen and I'll do that. So I've witnessed some of that. I came in late, as I said before, but mm. I've read the books and I saw how this, most of this happened during the two great wars, as some people call them, the two terrible wars, the World War I and World War II, were not, after all, they weren't at all what I thought they were all about. Yeah. They, weren't, they weren't about uh, forces of freedom fighting against the forces of fascism or communism. It was... All of those forces on both sides were collectivism. Yeah. That's the word. And it was just one form of collectivism fighting another form for dominance. They all believed pretty much the same. So that's where I came to. And it's been a very discouraging journey, but it's a refreshing journey in a way because now I know the truth. Yeah. I'm not kidding myself. So now we can look forward and, and with the knowledge of what went wrong in the past, if we have a chance to rebuild, and I'm planning on that, then we can rebuild it in a fashion that will fix it, let's say. In other words, I think the creation of the American Constitution was perhaps the most brilliant, inspired document, that political document the world had ever seen. Mm. It wasn't perfect, of course. Yeah. It, was a it was a beta model. What do you expect? It's a beta model. It lasted a hundred and some years. And then, of course, the, the, um, the uh, the criminals began to chip away at it and figure out oh, we can get it we can get around this clause that way we can get around that clause this way we'll amend the constitution and we'll start interpreting these words in a different way and we'll keep scaring people along the way you know what there's an old saying if a man is drowning he doesn't care much about a discussion uh, about the constitution he's all he cares about is getting to the surface and breathing so he can live yeah. so if you can get people into that condition of prime survival they don't care about constitutional privileges or liberty mm. or privacy or freedom of speech. All of these things are, hey, we're struggling. We're struggling to survive, man. Can't you see? We've got to do something now. 
So that's the world I wind up in, and I don't like it, but I have this crusader gene, as I said a moment ago, it's been vibrating still since going 1960, strong. still yeah. going strong, and I'm determined as long as I'm here to do what I can to set the foundation for rebuilding and, and patching up and learning from the lesson of our recent history and, pre and creating a platform for the next generation and the next generation after that. Yeah, I think I think that probably will happen is that we will rebuild it, and instead of instead of a great system lasting 150 years, maybe the next one we have a chance to build might last for 500 years before criminals begin to find out how to yeah. weasel well, it's and tear it apart. It's a cyclical thing, isn't it? Because you know you you know reading your book and you hear about early U.S. and you realize what a what an educated population it was and and how they were you know they they knew that fiat money was and that central banking was a risk and they actually had a strong opinion on, of it so do you kind of think that's a part of it that just generally over time people they get comfortable they get comfortable they get um they get complacent and so long as you have a because we're, we're certainly facing very organized forces right you have multi-gen these are multi-generational banking cartels who have a very clear idea in mind of kind of where they want to take things and so when you are when you're kind of confronted with that with that very with a very organized force i suppose it's just um it seems that if over time if you do not maintain a very wary educated um kind of populace and people that you're just you're, these things kind of become inevitable because they just like you're saying they kind of chip away at it over time so do you kind of see it as being irrelevant to some degree, not irrelevant, inevitable to some degree that um, that they were able to make, you know, make all these gains. I think it has been uh, inevitable up until now, because uh, I'm not aware of any movement of history prior to now where people are talking about things like we are mm. right now. How do we change this? Mm. How do we prevent this from happening again? Up until our own time, it was just a question of replacing one tyrant with another. If people didn't like the way the system worked, it was, they, they blamed it on the king or the emperor. He was a bad man. Let's get rid of him. We'll hang him if necessary. And so there's a revolution, and there's a great loss of treasure and blood to get rid of this tyrant. And what happens? They replace him with some other bloke just the same as he was, if not worse. Yeah. Because they never questioned, well, what do we want? What is the essence of liberty? How do we prevent this from recycling again? It was just enough to get rid of that bad man yeah. and replace him with a good man. Well, we see that in politics today. We've reverted back to that. We have political parties now. Well, the other party, we don't care about principles. Those, those those darn, in this country, those darn Democrats or those darn Republicans. Mm. And we got to choose up sides and we go back and forth, back and forth, not realizing that they're really basically the same. Yeah. But we, we have the, the, uh, the illusion, of the impression that we're participating in our own political destiny by choosing between criminal group A and criminal group B, who, who always get together after the, after the match and they go to the same bar and they drink and laugh and enjoy and they're, they're friends. Got the same paymaster. Yeah, yeah. The, the same paymaster, the same principle, the same lies, the same, the same tactics, the same strategy. And, you know, so I think we've come to the point now where you and I and people like us have a chance to, to grab this fact that's so obvious now and, and embed it in cement. It's going to be in historical cement 
if we have anything to say about it. Yeah. So that for the first time in history, we don't have to just fall back to that rotary circle over and over again, replace one tyrant with another. So yeah. that's, what I'm, that's what I'm really looking forward to. So I think it was inevitable up until this point in history, but now I don't think, it's, I don't think it has a chance. After we <laughs> break through this particular uh, yeah. contest that we're in, and then I think the, the established fact will be that there has to be a citizen group outside of politics that people are not interested in becoming political leaders, but they want to be the, the watchers the guards, the guardians yeah. of society. And this is, there's a great a group of people like that. I, I deal with them all the time. They don't want the political glory or the power, but they do want to be watchdogs to make sure that the people that are elected and put into office keep their oath. And we will watch them like, like bulldogs, you know? Yeah. Watch them like hawks. And the minute they step out of line, and we're going to be all over them. So anyway, I don't think it's inevitable, and uh, we just have to be smart now and start to build a system that encompasses that kind of a self-regulating uh, mechanism. Yeah, it seems that you know transparency is such an important part of things, right? That people need to have you need to have a very distributed sense of responsibility and kind of awareness amongst the people, and and that's one of the issues with. I guess democracy in a big country like like the US, where you have this the dif the distance between the median person and the people making decisions, right? So all this stuff going, all you know, the you you, you see through the book that from the founding of the US all the way to till through to nineteen twelve, mm -hmm. when they finally managed to get the Federal Reserve, you know, created and established, that you know, there's all there's a toing and froing, and there's these forces are very much trying to get control of the money supply and and get their system in place and if you just have, yeah, if you don't have this incredible vigilance and this and this strong transparency, where the average person is very, kind of is very aware of what's going on, um, then then people can pull these shenanigans. And so, and, and particularly when you tie on, you know, you tie on democracy, and you talk, there's a quote at the end of the book to Tocqueville talking about how essentially democracy gives a sense of legitimacy to whatever the government wants to do, and so. Mm -hmm. I think that's you know that's one of the that's one of the opportunities that we have now with with the, with the internet and hopefully blockchain can help um, distribute some of the um, I guess the the server power around instead of just kind of having it all owned by a few people in Silicon Valley is that you can kind of inc you can increase the, the penetration that all the information gets to amongst the people and you can bring governance closer to to the group right to to people to their family to the local communities. And so um, I do think that that's one of the main, that's one of the main opportunities is that the critical piece to me seems that you, you need, people need to be absolutely responsible for their own lives and, and finance. And, and it seems to me that the reason that finance is such a powerful tool is that it sort of subsidizes people to be irresponsible. <laughs> it subsidizes all these people to kind of live out their dreams, whether they want to be Napoleon, whether they're sort of want to be moral crusader, you know, kind of inflating, offering all these benefits to um, to the people, you know, new you know, new healthcare systems, new this, new that, you know, whether it's someone who wants to show off, for, you know, fancy new car and stuff. Um, and I think that yeah, it's just this this sort of lulling into a full sense of security, you know, you know, encouraged by this easy credit, um, you know, that's. 
that's kind of how you know kind of how i reflect on it um that it's just the sort of ultimate opium isn't it and um you know it's you finally you, you look at usury it's been warned about since the beginning of civilization back in the early, you know in the bible they're talking about you've got to be careful with with the money supply because <laughs> because it you know it, it really just lets people loose and so yeah in terms of that do you do you very much see the the finance being the critical piece of it so once so once the once the um you know once the sort of cabal once the cartel had the federal reserve established was that you know do you was that ultimately was that the kind of inflection point where you think they they had what they needed and then it was just a question of essentially seeing out the rest of their objectives yeah i think that's pretty much it that's how i see it and um i don't know I've read a lot of the, the works of these men who were involved back in the day, 1910, 1912, 1913, when the Fed was passed into law, and then the years that followed it when they were building the structure. They, you know, they made a lot of compromises in uh, 1913 in order to get the bill passed because there are a lot of people who were suspicious about it, William Jennings Bryan and others. And so they made compromises, and it was um, uh, Jacob Schiff who said, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll put restrictions into the law, uh, Mr. Bryan, if, if you want us to. Uh, we agree with you that maybe the bank shouldn't have the power to create money out of nothing like the present bill seems to indicate. And all right, we'll put restrictions into the law. And uh, how, how does that sound? Well, how would you want us to word that and so forth? They let him pretty much uh, uh, alter the bill. And the reading I got, this now I'm giving the words of my own vocabulary, but his friends, Jacob Schiff's friends, were saying, um, hey, um, what's the matter with you? You're crazy? We don't want that provision in there. We don't want restrictions in there. And he, is, he said uh, in one of his uh, memoirs, he said, uh, relax, gentlemen. We will amend it after it's passed. We'll change it after it's passed. Our object now is to get it passed and created. And so this is the kind of thing that most people don't realize is that the, and you alluded to it, that this is a, a generational movement that's been going on here. Yeah. And these people are looking far ahead of, of results and conditions that will evolve far after they're gone. So it's not necessarily just a, a, a personal, a private, uh, uh, you know, goal of their own. They want, they're dreaming about something bigger than themselves. Yeah. And here, and, and so what is it? Well, we know what it is. If we read their books, it's this idea of what they call the new world order. It's a world in which, in theory at least, there's no war. And uh, mankind, silly mankind, and all of his, his weaknesses is uh, finally corralled and uh, controlled and made to live a life of responsibility by power. Mm. And the power is initiated by those at the top who are wise and, um, and uh, you know, th th they are very kind and they will rule wisely. And, but they will rule nevertheless. And so they have the ideas of, you know, some people shouldn't be allowed to live. Some people are useless eaters. Some people outlive their life. They get to be over 65 or 75 or whatever the number is. It's time to go, buddy. You know, and some people just shouldn't be allowed to procreate. They should be sterilized. Some people, you know, 
some races are better than others. We'll have to eliminate some races if necessary. These people get these ideas of grandeur. Yeah. They want to play God. Yeah. They're going to restructure nature and the universe and everything. And they think in their own mind, at least I'm sure they do at the beginning, they think that it's for the good of mankind. Yeah. And so they justify it. And they're the worst kind. I mean, the worst, the, the, the person who's, who's uh, righteous about controlling you and thinking they're doing something for your own good, I think is more dangerous than a criminal who just wants to steal what you got. Well, because, you know, they can rationalize anything. If you have that mechanism of rationalizing any, any of your own goals into something that sounds moral, then there's literally, there's yeah. no limit to, to how far you can push it because everything's yeah. about this, you know, this beautiful utopia that you're, you're going to bring around. Well, yes, and that's, of course, the, the mantra of, the collect, of collectivism, which is the ideology that we're talking about. The mantra of that is that uh, the, uh, the group is more important than the individual, and that the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. Now, that is the hardcore bedrock of all of this ideology. If you can dream up some kind of a, of a story to to make it sound like that you had to sacrifice a few thousand people or maybe a million people for the greater good of mankind, why then you're a good guy. And so all of these wars are fought with that rationale. It's for the benefit of the world. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen because Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his friends in Washington, the collectivists in Washington, knew that the world had to be changed and they wanted to be at the peace table and able to have a voice in how to restructure the world and restructure mankind and they couldn't do it unless they were involved in the war and so the only way to get the American people to support getting into the war is to set up Japan so Japan would attack them. They insulted Japan, they cut off Japan's oil supplies, they were interfering with Japan's war with China, they did everything they could to get Japan mad as all get out and strike and then they cleared away all opposition and let the Japanese Navy come in and they even didn't tell their commanders on, on, on um, Pearl Harbor that this was happening, so it was a true surprise attack. And uh, thousands of American so sailors and a few soldiers lost their lives in this attack. And at first, these people I'm talking about denied that they had any knowledge of this attack. Later on, when the facts were well established, I think it was Statinius, don't, I have a right to be wrong, but I think it was Statinius who wrote in his diary, I know that the, the quote is, is true, he said, Yes, this was a great act of statesmanship to set up this attack because it was the, for the greater good of America. Mm. We had to do it. And we, we praise Franklin Delano Roosevelt because it was a great act of statesmanship, he said. So there you have it. You can justify any atrocity somehow if you say it's for the greater good of the greater number. And that'll hold true of little petty things all the way up to big things like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and, and, well, go on and on. I, I, if I say very many more things, I'll really be controversial. And then what will we do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, so I, I agree. I think, you know, with regard, we, we certainly have this inbuilt mechanism in us, right, to want to wanna be part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think the people that centralized power they very cleverly manipulate this but i do i think that 
one of the lessons that you learn, you know, we spoke about this generation organization is when you have a group of people with a strong culture who pass things from one generation to the next, who pass the learnings, who pass the wisdom, that's what enables them to win. And so I think that on the one hand, you know, collectivism is, you know, is the big enemy. But I think in terms of what we need to learn is that the way that you, the way that you compete, the way that you hold off, if you're just fragmented individuals, who do not pass on their learnings from their fathers, from their community, who do not work together, um, who do not build a strong network that can, you know, that can pass on, that can work towards long-term objectives, then the more organized, the more persistent force over the long-term will, you know, will ultimately prevail. And so I, I, I do think that one of the things that we, one of the learnings that we need to have is that, is that if you, is this organization, and is this strong social fabric and this, and I, I think collectivism is the wrong word because it's, it's obviously lumbered with all these, with, with all these ideologies perhaps. But I think that if we focus, that's, that's my only concern. If we focus too much on the individuals, right. And if you, and if you prevent really strong um, groups from forming, you know, from the ground up from the, you know, from the ground up, then all of these learnings get scattered, people get disorganized. And then my take is that when people get disorganized, and they're and they're alone, right? The, if you look at the West today, there's lots of people who are completely lost. They're wandering around New York. They're wandering around London. They're 29. They left their family. They left their hometown. These guys are just waiting to get sucked up into these into these movements, right? They're waiting to get sucked up into the climate change um, and 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 sort of throw themselves into these big, um, m- you know, noble movements because they have this void. And so it, it seems to me that kind of there is this need also for for having for, for building these strong you know generational um groups communities to kind of pass the learnings i'm curious to get your thoughts on that because yeah it seems yes that- that's i'm glad you brought that up because i think it's an important point to clarify um that there's a difference between collectivism and collective action mm. and now collectivism is collective action but with a special twist Collectivism relies on force. You will do it. Uh, just because I'm an individualist doesn't mean I have to move my piano alone. Yeah. I, will call, I will call my friends and say, I've got to move my piano. Can you give me a hand? And they have the right to say yes or no. But under collectivism, the commissar would say, I want to move my piano. You, you, and you show up at 3 o'clock and do it. Or into the gulag you go. So the kind of uh, group action and cooperation you're talking about is absolutely essential, but it has to be in the environment of freedom. You can, should be able to walk away from it if you want to. Yeah. It has to be voluntary. Once we understand that the whole issue here is not whether people are working together or not, it's under the conditions in which they're working together. Is it voluntary or is it compulsory? It needs to be that is the issue. Yes, and I believe that voluntary collective action is far more efficient and far more powerful than coercive collective action, which would be collectivism. Yeah, because um, yeah, that's, that's the only one thing that I think that the U.S., you know, we talk about it had the most ambitious founding mission. And I think that one of the only weaknesses I see in the kind of, I guess, in the, the inputs to the U.S. was this, you know, because of this, when you, you when you become when you take a people who are very crusader and they've come from Europe and they're kind of looking very much out for for their family for 
you know, for making wealth, for, for living out the American dream, I think it can tend towards a fragmentation. And that's the, and so that's the thing that, that's the thing that I think enabled in some ways it enabled these, these forces to grow in the U S because when you have a highly capitalist materialistic society, um, people end up, people end up thinking of themselves first. And so it's a very, it's a very tough balance, but I agree that it's, it's about the, it's about it being organic. It's about not, it's about it not being coerced and, um, and the rest of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I just think that people, we have to remember that we do belong that it, you know, all revolutionary movements, they, they, they predicate on isolated individuals. And so I do think we need to really build strong kind of social structures um, the advantage of what we have today and with and with this new technology and we can get on to talking about um, blockchain in, in a bit is that you very much with this new technology obviously the great powers have you know the u.s military were the people who pioneered the internet right and you i've heard you talk about how um many of these big banks they were funding they were involved in the early stages of, of bitcoin and stuff like that so clearly they, they have advantages for themselves but one of the it seems that one of the advantages that we have is that you can organize across you know in a very decentralized way you know the human race those of us who haven't had who are, aren't part of these large power structures who aren't part of these generational cartels who don't you know who wouldn't be offered a seat at the table it seems that we very much can at all these different points of this kind of these decentralized protocols we can organize um and so lots of people are talking about that but i just think yeah it seems to me that it's very important we remember this importance of you your family your community your tribe, you, that needs to be extremely robust and you need to kind of work towards something greater than yourself and, and you know, have a, a mission that, that spans generations. Otherwise, if you just end up going, thinking too much of yourself, if you end up getting too individualistic, then eventually the more organized force will, will win. But yeah, it seems that we do have the, the, the chance to you know, every so every people can now be sovereign without having to suck themselves up into these huge supply chains, these huge, um, you know, these huge kind of um, political, you know, these huge political institutions. Because the technology is there now, it seems to me. What What are your thoughts on all that? Well, I'm a, I'm a, in agreement with uh, everything you've said, um, but I just want to come back and emphasize that superimposed upon that analysis is the issue of uh, whether we're going to do this thing voluntarily or under coercion. Mm. That's all. We must never forget that issue because I, I believe, well, first of all, coercion is the essence of uh, tyranny. Mm. And uh, so we don't want that. We don't, we've, we've tried it. I mean, when I say we, mankind has tried it over and over again in history. And they've usually been, uh, millions of people have been willing to fight and risk their lives to get rid of it. So we know that's not what we want. And so the voluntary cooperation, that's the model we want. That's the model I think that's built, that has built the West. That's, a, that's the model that uh, created uh, art and the, the sciences. Mm. And uh, I mean, not that you can't have art developing in a totalitarian system like the Soviet Union, because there, we do know that there were some very fine artists and dancers and uh, poets mm that survived through the Soviet uh, experience. But there were very few of them. And, um, and, and, when, and when you really analyze their lives, they were given privileges. 
they were not really forced into the beehive like everybody else. So it was more like a little uh, sidetrack. They got out of the collective uh, concept and they were given more of a, a free reign because they were looked up to. And uh, just like the commissars didn't really didn't know, follow the rules that the collective had to follow. They always had plenty of good food on the table. They had a car at their disposal, always had the finest clothes. And uh, the yeah. idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that was just propaganda for the masses. Fraudulent. It apply to them. Yeah. yeah, totally fraudulent. So anyway, back to the main thing. I, everything you said is true, but I, I, I'm of the firm conviction that in a system of voluntary uh, collective action, not collectivism, but voluntary collective action, that is the stronger force of the two. Uh, it's like an army of, rec of, of volunteers fighting an army who had been forced into service. Mm. Which army do you think is going to win? Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, th those that really, those with the crusader gene, those with yes, the crusader yeah. energy, right? Those who really believe. Right. Um, yeah, no, yeah, so I, th I think that's a fair reconciliation. And um, in terms of looking ahead, obviously the work that you're, that you've done, and and the work that many people are doing, there's this recognition of the importance of just educating people, right? Um, getting their information out there, um, and it's not enough to have the right technology. It's about organising in the right way. Um, that that's a critical piece. On the, uh, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on, on the cryptocurrency. So, in terms of the old paradigm, you know, you have this notion of sound money, right? And sound money was sustainable. And, you know, inevitably, all these all these cultures first happened in Europe, and eventually they got you in the US, there's this transition away from sound money. And I'm just kind of wondering in, in this new paradigm of um, blockchain based currencies, um, what does what are the kind of lessons that that we need to learn? Um, how, you know what does kind of sound money because it you know clearly money credit um is the lifeblood of you know it's the kind of main force of energy that humans need to survive to transact and whatnot and so in this kind of new paradigm that we're going towards how do we not what does not making the same mistakes as the past look like um how yeah because obviously in the past it was kind of just living these this sort of wild dreams and letting people lend you out money um that didn't really exist how, yeah, how do we not kind of make similar mistakes in, in the new paradigm? Now, that is a good question. How do we avoid that? Frankly, I don't see it yet. Mm. I'm confident that there is a way. Mm. And the reason I don't see clearly a way to prevent that from happening is undoubtedly because I still have a lot to learn about the technical side mm. of cryptocurrencies. I understand the principles fairly mm. well. But when it comes to understanding how the blockchains and the side chains work and, uh, and how the splits and everything, I mean, who has control and who doesn't have control and all of that sort of thing, I have a lot to learn. I'm suspicious. I am worried about it because I think I just have a gut feeling that people have been too quick to embrace it because mm -hmm. they're, hung they're hungry for a solution to the present problem. They're desperate, yeah. Yeah, they're desperate. And I think they're possibly, now I, I'm not 100% certain, but it smells to me like this has been held out as bait to lure people away from real money, thinking that 
digital or cryptocurrency is the solution to all of their problems. And they may wind up finding out that, oh, didn't expect that that would be totally in the hands of a, tyrannic, a tyrannical international uh, banking system. Yeah. And right now, the, the, the mantra is that, well, that's impossible because of the technology. And that reminds me of the day when the Internet first came out. People were saying, they'll never be able to control the Internet. And never. That's impossible, you know. Well, I, I knew it wasn't impossible. I didn't know how they would do it, but I knew that they would do it somehow. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling, the same kind of feeling about the cryptos. So yeah, that's, well, that's, that's my worry. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I, I've had the same feeling in the sense that you look at what these people have pulled in the past and and you look at the way they react to stuff that they really don't want people to talk about. Um, and it's very clear, it gets put under the rug, like, no, we're not hearing about this. And it kind of seemed that, yes, obviously there was some establishment ridicule of Bitcoin, but it's been, they haven't, you know, you'd think they've got something, you know, they, they're not, if this really is just going to magically take away this generational power that essentially controls the world almost, it's, you know, they're going to give up a bigger fight than that. So I think that, it, that's that I, I share that with you. I think one of the advantages and my I guess my hypothesis is that, you know, one of the reasons that it's been such a powerful tool, the central banking in the past is that, um, yeah, finance is, is sort of a heroin and, and people need to be financially responsible. And, and what I think the one advantage of these systems is that they encourage many more people to learn about finance to learn about, you know, people now know what sound banking is. People now know what fiat currency is. They never would have known that 20 years ago. Even the, many of the great libertarians in the 90s getting excited about the internet. I think the level of education around, you know, how, how finance, how money really works was a lot lower. And so I think that's one of the advantages in it. And it seems to me that it's a kind of, it's a culture of, um, of kind of financial responsibility and, and financial independence that's, that sort of needs to, to spring up. And hopefully given that, given how easy it is to access these protocols, that's, that's one of the ways that we need to think about it. But yeah, I think um, it's hard to know. In, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard to put too much faith in Bitcoin, I think, and, and the existing ones that have been dangled in front of us. I think people need to be very wary. Um, but yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of my take. It's, it's about financial responsibility. I mean, is that how you kind of see the, if you look at the way that the central banks, you know, that's clearly the thing that these networks, that's the one thing that the critical piece that they want um, is to get control of that. And, and so do you kind of view that sort of that sense of responsibility and, and kind of education around the way that money works? Do you, do you see that being a critical piece of it as well? Yes, I do. I think that that's a definite... A positive side effect, you might say, of, of the of the trend, as you said very well, that uh, people are, at least they know what the word fiat money means, pretty much. They never, if they ever heard it before, they had no idea what it meant. And uh, but, and and the word sound money is is passed around a lot. People still don't know what that means, because it needs to be defined. Well, what is sound money? Well, sound money depending on who's answering the question. But if I were to answer it, sound money would be that uh, which is, um, which has maintains its purchasing power over a long period of time. Sound money is that which uh, meets all the requirements of good money with it. In other words, it's fungible. Mm. It's, uh, it's, uh, it do doesn't uh, rot. It doesn't, it can be divided into equal parts. It, 
and all of these things. Um, but once you once you put all those measures to what is a good a sound money, you're going to be wound, you're going to end up like all other societies have over the past couple of thousand years. You're going to be saying, well, I've looked at them all, and the most sound of all is silver and gold. <laughs> and that's the way it always turns out. And I have a feeling that a hundred years from now, if somebody is having this discussion, uh, they'll say, yep, that uh, that period, you know, the 2021 and 22, 25, uh, established once again that gold and silver has supremacy. Um, I, wouldn't dis I wouldn't discard bullion or anything else. Could be something other than gold and silver. Maybe technology will produce some kind of a, a super metal, which is even more rare and uh, and more durable and more useful because I believe that a sound money, one of the attributes of sound money is that whatever it is, it's a medium of exchange, whatever it is, it has to have some use for itself other than being a medium of exchange, which mm. is why it's a good medium of exchange. Yeah. And, and uh, cryptos don't have that. Um, and so forth. There are some, a couple of weaknesses of it, but don't get me wrong. I'm not down on cryptocurrencies. I, uh, in fact, I, I have, uh, I have to get some more. Actually, I just resolved the other day. I need to beef up my supply, not because I think that it's going to be replace and become the new currency of the future, but because it's a, a very interesting speculation right now, speculative investment, and. Uh, I'm certainly not betting all the money. I'm not betting the farm on it. I'm not <laughs> cashing out the farm and putting everything on it. But whatever little change I have left over at the end of the month, and I think, what am I going to do with this? Put, I'm not going to put it into savings anymore because the dollar is depreciating, depreciating its value so rapidly. So where do you put it? I'll put it into cryptocurrencies. I'll put it into silver. I'll put it into gold. I'll sort of spread it around and see who, let the best man win 10 years from now. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, it seems the, the advantages you can have, obviously, scale and financial system is so important. And it seems what the technology offers is the, is the possibility of having global scale without giving up too much, giving up too much power to, to people at certain choke points, right? Certain, you know, certain points in the bottleneck as to kind of whether it ends up being backed by something um, and, and how that plays out, I guess, is, is yeah, it, it's something that needs, it's something that need, needs to be hashed out, but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to get your thoughts on that because I think w people are so desperate for something um, because they kind of now waking up to the fact that everything, so many of these revolutions from the past or movements from the past that gave people hope, they kind of realize how many of those were orchestrated. I think that there's this temptation to, you know, just to sort of kind of blindly grasp out to it, but grasp out for it. And I think, you know, certainly seems that we need to kind of move in that direction to explore what that technology can do. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think I think there's a little litmus paper test for all of this too. Um, if you ask yourself, how many people are buying cryptocurrencies today? Well, there's a pretty large number of people. In my uh, in my acquaintance, I probably uh, I know several dozen people who are really active um, crypto buyers. Okay, they're serious. They know they know more about this coin, that coin, and whether it's going up or down, or who said what about it, and what's the what's the plan for next year, and all that. They're really students of it, and uh, they're really deep into it, and they're making huge amounts of money as the value goes up. Of course, it comes down, but generally it goes up over a long period of time, and everybody's counting on that. So I ask myself, 
Would those same people be as enthusiastic about the cryptocurrencies if there was no great profit potential at all? If they were just going into it because it was going to be a good sound currency yeah. someday? And the answer is no. Yeah. The answer uh, is no. So we cut right to the chase. So the main appeal today, in spite of all of this talk about independence and privacy and freedom and all that, the main thrust behind cryptos today is to make some fast money. Yeah, that's. Um, I think that you know the energy behind it. Some of the energy comes from people who have this hope around it, but the, I don't think the, the extent to which the money in it is sort of hard, pragmatic. Um, obviously, you have people who really understand technology and believe in it, but the, yeah, the amount of money in the market that is sort of hard, pragmatic, <laughs> um, kind of I just want this for what it is, um, mm -hmm. probably remains quite low. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And so, in terms of final question and then you can talk a bit about the the red pill expo so what's the critical piece of this going forward for you what's the one what's the one kind of message the one area the one thing you want people to to focus on because obviously there's just a million different directions people can run in and you know there's all these sort there's all sorts of um distractions and people can kind of just get excited and <laughs> think that you know i'm just going to put tons of money in crypto that's going to build my wealth and then i'm going to be a then I'm going to be a bit of a player. Um, then I can sort of, you know, start a movement or, or whatever. Um, there's, you know, lots of kind of shiny objects to chase and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of curious on what you want people to focus on. That's a very profound question. And you're right. There's so many different things, so many different goals, so many different pathways. But I would say the most important thing that I can see right now is that we have to reach out to our sleeping fellow citizens. They're asleep. They're, they're lulled into, into hypnosis. They're hypnotized or asleep, whatever you want to call it. They're believing the propaganda they hear. They're following in line and they when push comes to shove, are so frightened that if they don't do exactly as they're told, that they're going to wind up dying or that they're going to wind up killing somebody else because of their infectious diseases or whatever else. It's not just COVID, it's other things as well. And those people will, will do as they're told and they, they will pull us all into slavery because their numbers are so large. Mm. They will follow and right now their leaders are leading them and uh, they're not, we're not the leaders yet, but we are building. And so we have to reach those people. There's a tendency, I think, for many of us to say, well, look, I'm trying to reach them, but those idiots, they won't listen. They fall for this stuff. Well, they, they deserve it. They got it coming to them, you know? Leave them alone. Let them take the shot. You know, they'll see, you know? That's not the right attitude at all because those people are never going to change their mind. If, if they have start having a high death rate, it's going to be because they'll, they'll be told it's because of people like you and me that we're responsible for the high death rate, not the vaccines. And they'll they'll stand by and applaud when they come pick us up and take us to the gulag. I think, yeah, that's those guys are the ones that did this to us. So even though those people are not uh, informed and they probably will never do anything in, in terms of defending their liberty or changing 
the status quo into something, you know, a better way of life. Nevertheless, they will go along and give momentum to the powers that be. So we have to reach those people, whether we like it or not. And uh, it's like we're all in the same boat together. And if the boat goes down for them, it goes down for us too. Now that is kind of a segue into this final topic, which is mm. the red pill, because that's what the red pill expo and red pill university is all about and we're reaching out to a larger group of people that, under, that maybe aren't they're maybe not as deeply interested in in academic topics such as collectivism versus individualism you know one of the things that we're talking about maybe that isn't where their mind is but they're good people and they understand the principles they, they want to be free they understand that what's happening now is not right and so forth, they will be, they will be anxious to hear true information if we can present it to them in a way that is, is meaningful, mm. and not hype, and not, not, uh, um, you know, in, in a passion sort of way. Just lay the facts out to these people. I think they will understand. And we need to awaken them, and uh, get them to understand that when we stand up and call for action, when I say we, I'm talking about those of us who are trying to build a movement, that they should support us. Mm. They don't have to be out there in the front lines, they don't have to be financing us, but all they gotta do is say, yeah, good show, we're all for you. And if we're having a demonstration, they might show up and uh, show some numbers and show some support. Uh, this may sound kind of bland, as I'm hearing myself say it, it doesn't sound very exciting or very substantial. But I think it's only because I'm, I'm lacking the words to explain what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We have to mobilize the sleeping masses or we cannot change society. So everything I think the first thing we have to do is figure out a way to, is to break through this information dominance mm. that the collectivists have over our society. They own the, the media. They own the Internet. You know. They, they own all, all of the major channels of communication. They own the schools. Mm. So all of these for, sources of information, uh, they own it. And we have to break through that somehow. I, I yeah. think there's going to be a big market for pamphleteering. It's one of the things that we're working on very hard. Mm. And, uh, and private meetings and big meetings, public meetings. We have to resist this lockdown phobia and mania. And uh, that's one of the reasons we're having a big event in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, in June 5th and 6th, the Red Pill Expo. It's a big event. We hope, I think we're going to hit a thousand people there, and they're coming Amazing. from all over the country. And many of them are driving long distances because they don't want to get on an airplane if they have to put a mask on. I've got to stand somewhere, and I'm going to stand there. So they're going to spend three or four days one way, driving there, and three or four days driving back. And everybody's talking about seeing seeing America from the ground for a change instead of from the air, you know. So I'm rambling again, but I'll come back to my point, which I think everything we hope to do in in terms of changing changing this around and recapturing our liberties depends on whether we succeed or not in reaching out to our fellow human beings and getting them to see the basic truth and to take the red pill, so to speak, of the uh, illusions that are being foisted upon them. Yeah, I think, yeah, 100%. And in terms of the cold, rational, pragmatic thing, it's just, you know, you mentioned how all these channels of communication are, you know, we, we don't own any of them. I think the cold, rational thing you can do is, is just build build the networks, but, you know, organize 
build the networks online, mm -hmm. offline, build the infrastructure, and then you build a conduit for this information to get out. Because people, you know, people that you want to wake up, they're at different stages, right? If you just go around exactly. to someone who's very asleep, I've tried many times and, you know, they're not, you're not making any inches. And so people are different stages of the cycle and you just need to have as pervasive and robust a communication infrastructure and organization out there such that it's going to capture and pull, you know, as many people as possible to fall into the net. Yes, exactly. And, and the more, the more we succeed, the easier it is to go to the next step because yeah. there is, there is that certain human, uh, proclivity to want to follow where the people are going you know we, we have this herd instinct very few people are willing to be the first one to stand up and say follow me but uh, if you've got 20 people that have responded then it's easier to get 30 more and once you've got the 50 now 200 will step forward and when you've got you know 250 maybe you'll get 500 and the first thing you know if, well, how's that song go give me some men some stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. That's mm. how it works. So we have to show uh, the faint-hearted that they're not alone and that there are huge numbers of us. That's part of our strategy. Perfect. And in terms of the Red Pill Expo, where can, can people in the UK that has a live stream, if I'm not mistaken? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And it's very, it's very reasonable, too. Yeah, just like sitting in the front row. Yeah, you can... Uh, that's it. Come on to uh, the Red Pill... Expo website. It's redpillexpo.org. Redpillexpo.org. Yeah. You see all of the speakers there. It's a fantastic collection of experts. And uh, the topics will blow your mind. And uh, there's an option for a live stream. So okay. you can watch it uh, live stream while it's going on and for uh, 60 days afterwards. So it'll be a replay for 60 days afterwards. So you'll be, everybody will be a, have a chance to see the whole thing, the whole bloody thing for two days if they just want to take the two the two months afterwards and invite your friends over and and all your family and let them watch it too have some red pill parties i think that's what we want to do excellent oh, i'll put all that information in the description but edward thank you very much it was a it was a huge pleasure to speak to you well thank you i hope i haven't rambled too much oh not but, at all <laughs> uh, uh, you get me going on some of these things it's kind of hard to stop yeah uh, yeah, we could, you know, the Crusader gene still growing strong, right? So yeah, it, 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 it vibrates. You can't keeps put me a up, keeps down. me up at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess that's what keeps me going. And, and by the way, I have to compliment you. You have, in, in my mind, you have a very excellent grasp of the situation. I don't know where you got all this, but you uh, you got it a lot faster than I did in life. And I uh, congratulate you. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, it's all standing on the shoulders, right? I mean the work that you've done it just gives us gives every person a, a easier building block to start from right so um so thank you for pioneering all this really appreciate it well thank you hope we uh, hope we raise some rabble today perfect cheers ed uh, all right cheers thank you goodbye thank you for listening to that if you enjoyed the way that i think about these issues then you might enjoy pith weekly so Pith Weekly is my blog, which I email out every Saturday morning, uh, somewhere where I share my latest thinking on metapolitics. And I also share some highlights of what I've read. I'm always digging through some really critical texts uh, in the area. Um, and it's, it's something which is um, the center point for what I'm doing. 
you know, the reality is we don't really know what's going to happen and what platforms people are going to be kicked off of over the next few months, whether YouTube, Twitter, whether Gab's going to take off. But that will always be there. My email will always be there. I'll always be sending my, my best thoughts out and my best learnings out every Saturday morning. So I really hope some of you subscribe. You can find the link in the description. Um, and it'd be great to to have you as part of my community, as a node in my network. Um, so thanks again.